And it's now time for Dog Hey, it's Metal Dave along with my co-host Jason McMaster and welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Today we're going to talk about opening bands and uh, by that I mean we're going to talk about opening bands that either impressed us and we weren't expecting much when we walked into the venue or we're going to talk about opening bands that completely stole the show from the headliner. And uh, I know we've both seen a lot of those sorts of bands and probably more than we can talk about in one episode, but we're going to cover as much as we can today uh, in just a minute. But first, uh, let me bring in Jason. What's going on with you, man? What's happening? What's on your radar this week? Still putting the house back together a little bit, uh, sort of preparing for spring break or summer or stuff like that. The heat I, wave. I, yeah, I did get, well, it was only 80 degrees. That's cold in texas yeah so uh, <laughs> but i got in the pool to, basically to clean it but i got got my got my trunks on and i got in there and i was like this is a bit too cold and maybe i'm just a big wimp or something but you know <laughs> I had, my, had my pool vacuum and i'm in the pool waiting around and it's usually a fun little ritual you know I got yeah. coffee and stuff like that and it's a beautiful day uh and uh man i was in there five minutes and my toes turned blue <laughs> i was like i'm out uh so i got out and uh yeah i'd finished the rest of it with the long pole so uh, got that got that done and uh and no everything's good um so how many people have ever seen you in shorts Busy, not many at all. Not <laughs> I've many. known you for about 25 years, and I don't think I've no. ever seen you no. in shorts. No, you don't. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, taking care of business at the swimming pool, getting it ready for the Texas heat wave. That's right. Um, yeah, I'll have to come over when that hits because uh, we'll be dying at that point. Um, you know, I... Uh, was driving around yesterday and I just randomly picked out a CD and it was the first Buck Cherry record. Mm -hmm. And I haven't listened to it in a while. And uh, man, I was reminded of so many good memories and uh, what an impact that CD made. And to be more accurate, the first album came out in 1999 and most people know it as the album that has the painted woman on the cover. But I have a 1998 advance uh, CD that was sent to me by the record label because I was uh, being paid to write their bio. So I've got this 98 version, and it's basically, it's uh, no artwork, typewritten song titles. The name Buck Cherry is actually two words instead of one, and it's lacking one of the songs that ended up on the final album. So it really is kind of a, a rarity of sorts, I guess. But man, I wore that thing out in 98, 99, took it everywhere I went and uh, played it for everyone that would listen and even some who wouldn't. And uh, it reminded me of what a great album it was and how many great memories I have associated with it. They, at that time, they were kind of everything I wanted and needed in a rock band. 
It came out in, you know, 99, so we're at the end, end of the grunge era, sort of not quite into the full-blown new metal thing. And here comes this band that's kind of, you know, picked up sort of where Guns N' Roses kind of left off, in my opinion. And it was everything I wanted, and it's a great album. And uh, I was uh, happy to revisit it today or yesterday, this week recently, or actually, you know, it was a, a really good one when it came out. Still a good one, stands up well. People talk about great debut albums, and they talk about Appetite for Destruction and Van Halen 1 and the first Boston album and the first Montrose record. And for my money, that first Buck Cherry record is, uh, is right there in the mix. I love it. Yeah, it's a fun record. I, uh, I was at that show uh, that you talk about that was at Stubbs downtown back yeah. then and um you know it it was good and, and then i heard the record after and um uh the you know the energy uh i gotta say was the same on the record that it was live and that yeah. usually doesn't happen it's usually um the record is a little less you know less in your kick less kick in the head than the live show is Right. Uh, it was cool, man. I like how dry the production is on that record. There's not a lot of like fancy polish on the record. It's it's mixed and produced extremely well. Yeah. Uh, but it's pretty dry and raw, uh, which is kind of a punk rock uh, way to do things. And right. And and it probably wouldn't come as any surprise because it was co-produced by Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, the guitars from the Sex Pistols, along with Terry Date, who uh, had made a name for himself at that point, working with, uh, I believe, Pantera and Soundgarden, some some real heavy hitters. Metal Church. Yeah. So, you know, you put those two talents together. One guy's got the heavy bottom end and one guy's got the raw, energetic electric yeah. punk rock engineered by bruce bouillet from racer x fame is that right well there you go anyway great album uh reminds me of a lot of great times uh yeah. when i first got it here's a funny uh, little side story on buck cherry when uh i got to know them early on in their career because like i said i was asked to write their bios so i interviewed them over the phone and then i had some contact with them trying to get their story straight and all this jazz well, when they um, finally arrived in Austin and I got to see them live, uh, the time that you mentioned at Stubbs, and then a subsequent time, they actually had a tour bus instead of a van. And they were playing at the back room and I was on the bus hanging out with them before the show. And they had this ritual where- I've heard of the, the ritual. The, the ritual. Pre-show pre ritual. Yeah, the pre-show ritual for those who don't know is, uh, they would crank up Metallica's uh, Seek and Destroy and everybody would jump around in the aisle on the bus and play air guitar and get stupid and get crazy and just kind of get the blood pumping in time to go on stage. And I was on the bus and got to, you know, take part in that ritual. and It was a lot of fun. So uh, anyway, Buck Cherry, uh, near and dear to my heart, that first album, it still stands up great. It's fantastic. And uh and I uh, hadn't heard it in a while, but it still sounds great to this day. And today, this episode, we're talking about opening acts. And again, like I mentioned at the top of the show, these are opening acts that Jason and I saw that either uh, impressed us, 
right away or actually stole the show from the headliner. And uh, I've got a few, but I'll let you go first. Jason, who uh, stands out as somebody that uh, knocked you out as the warm-up act? Well, here's something that that I want to mention. It may not be uh, a show that I attended. It may not be, it may be like a poster or like an ad with tour dates on it that has a lineup. And I'm going, what? So-and-so's opening? You know, like I have this old Venom poster where Metallica had been invited to be the opening act on a Venom tour. And it may have been uh, the Seven Dates of Hell or something like that. So it would have been in 83... Uh, and I can just only imagine the mayhem, uh, and the possibility that these young guys from California would have stood up to a Venom show, you know, stood up at, you know, impressed the, the Venom legions, uh, for, of hell. I feel like I should be dramatic here because we're talking about <laughs> Venom. But uh, I would imagine. Are there any other kinds of Venom? Yeah, fans? right. Yeah. I, I bet, well, you know, you got to you gotta add a bunch of drama when you talk about Venom because that's all, really all they got. So uh, <laughs> that's what, and, and that brings me to, to say, and being a huge Venom fan, um, I would only imagine just being a fly on the wall that Metallica gave these uh, black metal early, earliest uh, visionaries of black metal gods uh, a run for their money. And I, I, I'm sure there's uh, some footage and some audio from those shows, and I'm sure that uh, uh, the Metallicats are completely uh, firing on all cylinders and probably gave them a run for the money of not blew them away. I don't know anybody was over there on that tour, but the poster kind of is, you know, gives me this fantastical view of like, holy crap, I wish I could have been at one of those, you know? Yeah. I also have another, uh, another show poster where it's a little bit upside down of that, but uh, in my opinion would have, been uh, a show that i would have uh, killed to be at and that is tank opening for metallica on the right lightning tour wow so tank is this sort of unsung hero three-piece english uh punk motorhead vibe sort of bluesy you know band of pirates that uh <laughs> They've got a slew of records out, and I don't know if they ever made it to the U.S., but you could still consider them probably to be a little bit of a late bloomer in the New Wave of British Heavy Metal world. And Tank is probably a band that we should even talk about more on Talk Louder um, and how they how they contributed. But three-piece, bluesy, pretty much uh, baby Motorhead. Yeah, uh, and they were very uh, respected by by Motorhead. The original Tank had a couple of brothers in it, and uh, Algy Ward uh, singing and playing bass, who was actually in The Damned for a little while. Wow. Algy Ward was in The Damned, and uh, Lemmy being friends with The Damned as well, which makes a lot of weird sense to me. Yeah, um, I think he even played bass on couple of songs hanging out with them or something but uh the point i was of that i was making is i had this i think it's a german show and tank is on the uh, as the opening support act 
And in my brain, I'm just going, holy moly, this would have been a serious uh, show to attend. Um, yeah. Just because of the ilk of what it is. I mean, Metallica being an obvious champion of, uh, you know, anything that is and stands for the new ever British heavy metal. And here's, here's Tank. Uh, I mean, it would be the same glory sort of uh, vibe as Diamond Head opening for Metallica. It's, yeah. you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. So, yeah. Those would have been shows. Who knew was sort of like who had the favorite that night? Who, you know, who knocked out Muhammad Ali is not, it's never a contest anyway. It's a celebration of rock and roll. So, yeah. I'm, yeah. Just, I'm just saying that those are, those are two things that are very fantastical. And, you know, there might be some, some things, uh, you know, about that, that, that you might even want to bring up. So, um, you know, a band that might, uh, I've talked about, you know, we, we did a show on our first concerts and I got to say, uh, an opening band that I saw that made an impact that made me love the band even more. And, and then eventually buy more of their material was angel. And honestly, yeah. I don't know a lot of people who saw angel, uh, right. but I saw angel open for Ted Nugent and it was like two different styles of rock and roll all together <laughs> so yeah. i i can't really say that i you know i was surprised by angel enough to like i said to support them and and become a bigger fan of theirs um my my uh fandom of ted nugent did not change Therefore, right. I think that I walked away going, man, that ain't that was cool seeing angels. Now it, it's like a legendary thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not, not many people can say they saw Angel. That's that's. Yeah, I don't good. know. I don't know of anybody right on right off that you know right immediate that I could say has seen Angels. So I feel yeah. pretty lucky there. Yeah. I have a long list of uh, opening bands that impressed me, but the one that always comes to mind first is uh, I saw Queensryche open for Kiss on... Kiss was touring the Animalize record, and Queensryche was promoting The Warning. And I am a lifelong Kiss fan, as you know. And, uh, of course, by the time Animalize came around, uh, there was, they weren't wearing the makeup. It wasn't the original band. But they were still, you know, putting out some pretty good stuff. And I was still eager to go see them in concert and watch them play the hits and all that sort of thing. Uh, and I was familiar with Queensryche because I grew up in San Antonio where the DJ Joe Anthony was playing Queensryche as far back as the EP, uh, the first release. Um, so I was familiar with them. So they didn't catch me entirely out of the blue. But I remember watching them as a young, hungry uh, band full of really good players, a lot of energy. Jeff Tate's voice was like nothing you've heard, you know, since Rob Halford. And Kiss was kind of, you know, they were lacking the makeup. So, you know, for a Kiss fan like me, it was already a downgrade to a degree. And uh, I'm not saying Kiss was bad that night, but Queensryche came out ready to prove something and they were at the top of their game and they were fantastic. And I just remember 
leaving the arena thinking, wow, I think Queensryche just stole the show. They were I really that. good. I, I saw that tour in Austin at the Frank Irwin Center. And I don't know. I remember just kind of walking around the venue. Um, I did like the warning. Yeah. Uh, uh, I thought that that was a, a really cool sort of like uh, if I squint, some of this sounds like Iron Maiden, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was cool. I was cool with that. Yeah. I, I had the uh, I had the in and I was not interested in Kiss, which Kiss is that's a shocker because Kiss is one of my favorite bands. Right. But not Animalize. Right. So, yeah. you know, and uh, there's no Ace and Peter. So I was one of those guys, you know, still it was that was that was a while back. So, yeah, I was kind of like five. Yeah, it was it was uh, I was in a, a weird place as far as, you know, my my metalhead crown I, that I thought that I wore. I, I was not into animal eyes whatsoever, but yeah. uh, I was at that show. Um, I saw Queensryche open for Quiet Riot. Someone else was on the bill as well, and that would have been at the Austin City Coliseum, yeah. uh, which is now a grassy knoll down on Auditorium Shores. It's been yeah. bulldozed, and now there's just grass there with, I think, a gazebo or something, Yeah, uh, which is a sin because it's holy ground. <laughs> yeah. Being the place that I saw Metallica on Ride the Lightning Tour February 21st of 1985. With yeah. armored, with armored saint, with armored saint, yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, I I actually kind of like uh, uh, got somehow got to the guys in Queensrÿche after their set, like while Queens while Quiet Right was on stage, I guess. Uh, Lita Ford might have been on that bill, and she might have been after Queensrÿche. I don't know. Anyway, uh. I, I was standing next thing I knew I was standing in front of Jeff Tate and it was really, it was really strange. He had the, the headband on and he had the bangs and the real straight hair and the kind of had it kind of had your hair, but real long, you know, yeah. kind of Pat Benatar hair, but real long, you know, yeah, I know the, what you're talking the, about with the Pat Benatar headband. Uh, <laughs> he, he, I, 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 you know, it's, I was just like, great, great show, you know, and I couldn't really get any, anything other than a nod. Uh, but, uh, I want to say they were, they were just supporting the EP and the warning was either brand new or wasn't quite out yet. Yeah. And so I had the EP, which was on 512 records with yeah. uh, Lady Wore Black and Queen of the Queen Reich. Of the Reich and all that. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so, so they were, uh, spectacular to see for me because, I've never been that big of a Lita Ford fan, uh, and Quiet Riot wasn't really my my jam all the way. I I liked Quiet Riot because they were kind of one of the early sort of like uh, torch carriers for uh, making heavy metal a household term. Yeah. You know? So yeah. Uh, uh, it was a great show, but I think Queensrÿche sort of in my book uh, stole the show. So. I don't doubt it that your your love for Queensryche at that Kiss show was you were able to walk away with uh, some of their merchandise on your back and not Kiss animalize. Yeah, they definitely blew me away and impressed me, and uh, and I you know 
like I said, uh, they stole Kiss's thunder, and uh, this is coming from a lifelong Kiss fan. And again, to be clear, I was aware of Queensryche. I knew they had the music. I knew they had the songs. But to see them on stage in the big arena, opening for the big boys, and they came to to t kick ass and take names, and they did. So uh, I'll never forget that. That's one of the ones when people ask about opening bands that I remember. I'll never forget Queensryche stealing the show from Kiss in 1985. Um, another one I've got is... Uh, a little, a little bit uh, out of our normal box, I guess you could say, even though we keep Talk Louder pretty wide open. But um, I, I was reviewing a show for a newspaper here in Austin, so they sent me to the gig, and the show was the Foo Fighters opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I wasn't a huge fan of either band, uh, but I was intrigued by uh, Dave Grohl and what he was doing after Nirvana. And uh, I interviewed him. It might have been on this same tour. This is 1997, so they're, they're promoting the, the Color and the Shape album. And uh, they opened for the Chili Peppers. And again, I, I, you know, the Chili Peppers weren't bad. But the Foo Fighters, oh my God, they just completely stole the show. And Dave Grohl was, that was the first time I'd ever seen him as a front man. And he was, he was magnetic, man. I mean, he just had so much charisma, so much control over the crowd, so much friendly, casual banter. It wasn't like rock stars speaking to his, his minions. It was just a dude that had the microphone, you know, and everybody responded. Conversational, talking to the audience like there is people. Yeah, and, and, and the audience like responded. A, yeah, like he's at a party and he can have a conversation. Right, yeah. and so uh, I was in the photo pit for that show, so I was taking photos, so I was really close, you know, as close as you could get, actually. And uh, Dave Grohl was just a phenomenal showman, and I remember there was a point in the show where, you know, of course he's wireless, so he's playing guitar, he's singing lead vocals, and he runs behind the drum kit, leaves the stage, disappears, and starts reappearing in different areas of the arena, and the spotlight, of course, is following him, and it was just really cool. I mean, they, you know, it, of course the crowd went wild for that whole, you know, shenanigans and whatnot, but uh, I remember being really, really impressed with the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl as a front man. So uh, more power to them. I think they stole the show. Your first time to see uh, the Foo Fighters, um, I'm sure that Pat Smear was there. Uh, it was the Color and the Shape tour. So, yeah, he was he was there. Um, and I don't know that that was the first time I saw the Foo Fighters. It was it was because I saw him once at the Austin Music Hall. And I can't remember which came first, but I remember, I remember them at the Irwin Center, big arena, opening for the Chili Peppers, and uh, yeah, they they were sort of the the new band, even though of course Dave had this history with Nirvana. But uh, right, I'm just bringing up Pat Smear because you are in standing in front of a legend at that point. Oh yeah, He's yeah. You're standing in front of a legend. He's an older gent at this point. Yeah, he's been around the block. He helped create uh, the punk scene in Los Angeles. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that 
huge respect to that. Like Dave Grohl is smart. He knows what he's doing. And he was already friends with, with, uh, you know, Pat, when Pat joined Nirvana, of course, but there's a reason Nirv- that he was in Nirvana. It's for all of the accolades that I'm basically, uh, glitter bombing upon to Pat right now. Yeah. The yeah. Of the infamous germs. I have another Pat Smear story, but I'll save it for another episode. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a fun one. Actually, it has something to do with Buck Cherry too, which is how I opened this show. But uh, I'll save that for another time. Okay. Anyway, Foo Fighters, in my opinion, stole the show from the Chili Peppers in nineteen ninety-seven. Great. Well, show. I might I might get monkey crap thrown at me for saying this, but that seems like an easy win for the Foo. <laughs> It does in hindsight, but you know, uh, the Chili Peppers were one of the biggest bands on the planet at that time. And, and the Foo Fighters, uh, of course, had a lot of name recognition because of Dave Grohl, but they weren't really, they hadn't really proven themselves out on the road and as an arena attraction as a live band yet, because they're only on their second album at that point. And I think the first album, Dave basically recorded that all by himself. So I don't even know how much touring they did behind that first album, although they did some. Uh, but, you know, they were not yet regarded as this fantastic high energy live band that we know them as today. So um, I think a lot of people were in that arena that night that went, wow. We knew that Dave Grohl was in Nirvana, but here he is fronting this band, playing guitar, and wow, who knew, man, that this thing was going to turn into such a cyclone of energy and a, a good time and, you know, leave everybody blown away. So props to him. They were great. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that uh, there was any way for anyone to know at that point that Dave Grohl was just waiting to unleash you know right exactly he's playing drums in nirvana he's he's kind of uh been holding back when you yeah well he 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 attacked the drums like a beast so you know you know but but as you know i mean stepping out from behind the drums and being the front man and playing guitar while you're at it is uh that's a pretty formidable task, you know, and he did it in spades and is still doing it to this day. So uh, give well, me a lot of credit. A, there's a lot of, sure, there's a lot of drummers who are wizards. And uh, Charlie Benanti is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a bunch of them. Uh, Steven Tyler is Started a as a drummer, yeah. Well, yeah. He, he's a drummer. Yeah, he, he's percussive in the way that he sings. He yeah. sings when he sings with in rhythm patterns. Yeah, and I mean, he, Joey Ramone and Iggy Pop started as drummers too. Yeah, you know, it's so. important. It's important to realize that there's a lot of uh, drummer in a lot of lead singers because they there's patterns that they're working with. Um, I've heard Dave Grohl talk about playing guitar. He attacks the guitar like he attacks the drums. He thinks of his hands as drum as he's playing the drums. He he thinks of a guitar as a drum, and yeah. it's, the irony is is there's uh, there's um, fact that uh, James Brown basically insisted to his band members uh, hired guns whatever that uh, they need to play their instrumentation the way that they would play a drum. Yeah. It's important to think rhythmically because it's 
you know, he wants every, he wants the audience to have ants in their pants. Yeah. He wants everyone to, to, to get out, get up off of, get up off of that thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the drummers, you know, if you think like a drummer, you're going to, you're going to have good rhythm. So, um, speaking of an Aerosmith show, of course, I've never seen Aerosmith open for anyone. Right. But I saw Megadeth open for Aerosmith. I saw that too. Very, very odd billing. Well, that yeah. bill lasted about five dates, and then Aerosmith booted Megadeth off the tour. But uh, I saw it in Houston. And go ahead with your same, story. No, I was at the same show. I, oh, we were in at Houston. the same show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, and yeah. Megadeth yeah. went on at, like, I don't know, 5 p.m. or something. Yeah, or yeah. Sun shining. It was, they were, they were getting a suntan while they were playing <laughs> P-Cells. Yeah. Know? Um, but I, I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed Megadeth in front of Aerosmith because it was kind of a, uh, a, a kick in the pants when you hear Megadeth uh, sort of sitting next to Walk This Way. There's kind of not really, I mean, it's like boogie-woogie pop rock, you know, sleep, mixed with sleaze and some old 70s rock and roll gods with with a, a, a thrash metal band. Yeah. In front of it, it was kind of an odd feeling. I'm a huge Aerosmith fan, but it was really easy for me to walk away from um, from that show going, I loved Megadeth that day. Yeah. And, um, I'm a I, huge Aerosmith I was fan. like three. I was like th- third row. I was like standing in the heat of it all. Oh, wow. And yeah. Like dropped dead center and, and Mustaine even saw me and he was like, what are you doing here? Looking right at me. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I'm here to see you. And he could hear me say that because I was so close. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so that's a good one. I, you know, uh, there's a, there's one that I, that I've mentioned on the show and I'm going to mention it again is I went and saw Danko Jones the first time nah. he ever played in Texas. He came yeah. to and he was supporting Turbo Negro. Now, I had heard about Turbo Negro. I, I, I know a lot of people who think that that, that band hung the moon. Yeah. I can't really recall where they're from. Are they Finnish? I think Swedish? so. They're, scan- they're somewhere from Scan, somewhere yeah. over there in Scandinavia. I apologize to our listeners who are Turbo Negro freaks. I, I just don't know much about them. Yeah. And I, I, for some reason, I'm, I'm not completely sold on them i don't know what it what my problem is i apologize <laughs> but, but i like the fact that you think it's your fault <laughs> yeah, yeah well i'm just trying to be nice to no, i get it might be like that's that's very diplomatic of you. because there there are quite a few people that i that i still know uh that uh you know have these turbo negro like fan club jackets with yeah. hats sewn on the back and Yep. And like embroidered nicknames and stuff on the jackets, and they would meet on it every Tuesday night at the at the local club and <laughs> yeah. listen to Turbo Negro for three hours and do shots or something. Yeah, yeah. Hey man, I think that if you can form your own fan club and and have it be a weekly thing, you're That's you're awesome. keeping 
you're keep sure you're keeping a, a club in business. It's like a scene from Cheers, <laughs> and you're, and, you're and, and you're a fan. And I love it when people are like over the top about some a band that they really really love. Sure. And sure. so, but but it's just too bad that I didn't get Turbo Negro the way they did. But the point. He was Danko was supporting Turbo Negro on a slew of dates in the U.S. Now, Danko had probably already opened many shows with these guys over in Europe because Danko's huge in Europe. Yeah. I was a new uh, Danko fan. Someone in the U.K. sent me burn CDs of Danko to just go, what? You don't know who Danko Jones is? And I was like, I don't know. What's a Danko Jones? That sounds weird. Yeah. And, uh, that's it. That's a whole nother story. You, please make no, remind me to tell you that story about getting those Danko CDs because I yeah. got, uh, I, I got the, I got a, a burn of, uh, the darkness, the first darkness EP. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time. And, and let's just say Danko won that fight. Yeah. Uh, 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 but it's a funny story. Uh, so I was hooked the first time I heard Danko. So I see that he's coming, opening for Turbo Who, you know. And uh, I, I told, uh, by that time, all my friends, all the guys in Broken Teeth, everybody. And this would have been early 2000s, 2003, 2004, something like that. And uh, they, it was at Emo's outside here in Austin, Texas. And... Uh, I was like one of like six people headbanging and singing all of the lyrics and I'm standing next to a guy and I'm like, wow, how do you know all the words? And he's like, oh, I'm from up north and I'm down here going to college and I'm a huge fan because, you know, I'm closer to Canada or something. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Turbo came on and I couldn't even pay attention, but I'm just going to go on a limb and say, Danko won that fight. He was Muhammad Ali. He just killed it. Yeah. Best, best energy anyone could ever have on stage. He was, he was, uh, like a young D Snyder on crack, you know, yeah. just, he was just yeah. out of control. And yeah. uh, I've been, uh, totally sick in the brain for Danko ever since. So yeah. that's definitely one for the books that sort of changed, um, my mind, especially when you think about the era. You know what I mean? You, you mentioned Buck Cherry earlier. Uh, I would imagine Buck Cherry kicked some serious ass on tours they've been on. You know, yeah. we're the opening band. They're just like someone unexpected. Buck Cherry, what's a Buck? Holy moly. You know, after they saw them in front of Kiss or whoever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you turned me on to Danko Jones, and I've seen him numerous times because of you. In fact, you actually... Uh, turned me on to some of those burned CDs that you were mentioning earlier, and I have them sitting right here in my collection to this day. For the record, we have purchased the real... Yes, yes, yes. The yes, official indeed. releases of those CDs, and the burned CDs were only to sort of trade, introduce. just trading yeah. and introduce, right, just yeah. for the record, for the uh, FBI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Danko, uh, he's a tough act to follow. He's fierce, man. I, I know that word is overused a lot today, but it's the perfect word for Danko Jones. And uh, if I was in a band, I I wouldn't want to follow him, man. <laughs> you know, he's a tough act to follow. 
So yeah, I can imagine. I saw him open for Volbeat in San Antonio. And then once again, that is a show that I've mentioned on Talk Louder before. And I feel like San Antonio, of all places, you know, known as heavy metal capital of the world, uh, maybe maybe arguable at this point. Not in my eyes, of course, because yeah. I'm from here. But my point is, San Antonio didn't get it. It did. It didn't really translate in my eyes. I'm looking at it around like, man, these everyone's crazy here. They're they're just standing there, not feeling this energy. Or maybe their minds were blown. I just expect yeah. more Danko fans. Maybe they were standing there. Uh, Shell shock. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and I hope he sold a bunch of merch that night and I hope he did well. But I was just there for Danko. Yeah. I didn't even know what a Volbeat was. And I, right. to this point, don't really understand Volbeat. Like it's yeah. Turbo Negro and Volbeat. I'm trying to gather my thoughts on that still here 15 20 years later danko jones formidable band for sure yeah um i here's another one that always comes to mind when people ask me this question about opening bands uh you know stealing the show i saw white zombie in 1992 open for danzig and at the time i was very familiar with danzig um and just starting to get acquainted with White Zombie. And again, living in San Antonio, I had maybe more of an advantage than you know, the rest of the country. I know that the, the Make Them Die Slowly record was on sale at Hogwild Records, and they had the EP where they got in some trouble with Gene Simmons because they had his likeness on the, on the EP. But the, their first, their major label debut, Las Exorcisto, was uh, on Geffen Records. And they were out promoting that record. And that's the album that has Thunder Kiss 65 and Black Sunshine. They were starting to make a splash on MTV. Beavis and Butthead were championing them. And uh, so I went to the show excited about both bands because I'm a big Danzig fan. And I was liking what I was seeing and hearing out of this White Zombie band. And uh, they went on stage. <laughs> And it was a whole nother animal. It was like nothing I'd seen before because they kept the strobe lights going almost constantly. And, you know, you remember White Zombie, they had the dreadlocks. So there's these dreadlocks flying around, strobe lights going bananas the whole time. It was like you were having a seizure. And the music was just this wall of sound. And it was kind of metallic grunge sort of art sort of weird mishmash of music but it was heavy and super fuzzy devil and disco devil disco yeah. Devil <laughs> yeah yeah but they were just i mean again i i i don't really know how to describe them because at that point they were like nothing i'd ever seen before that the the strobe lights and the dreadlocks and the sampled sound effects and and they weren't very they were not a verse, chorus, verse kind of band. So it wasn't like you could sing along or quite, you know, find the hook. It was in there, but they, it was just, they were just an assault on your senses. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, Danzig's got their work cut out for them because that just blew my mind. And Danzig, again, like I've said on some of these uh, previous bands that I've been discussing, Danzig was great. No, Not knocking Danzig. They came out and did a great job. Uh, but White Zombie really impressed me that night. And it's, then, of course, they were very short-lived. It's those two different 
in in it's it's similar to some of the shows that we've that we've talked about in this same episode where like like the Megadeth Aerosmith thing. That's like it's we it's a weird sort of like uh oh well I like this one well I like this one too what you know what I mean which one do I take a bite of first kind of a yeah thing. Um, yeah Dan Danzig is way uh, more uh, dramatic than White Zombie and White Zombie has this um there's a, there's a lot of drama but it's it's very uh, haunted house at the carnival. Yeah, exactly. Which makes it work with Danzig, right? Yeah, but yeah. It's also very cartoony at the same time. Yeah, and Dan the description of it is devil disco for sure because it's it's basically dan heavy metal dance music. Yeah, and the strobe yeah. Lights are kind of proven that, and that's and, fair. And, yeah, and each member of White Zombie kind of seemed like a comic book hero of some right, kind. right. I like that you mentioned. I like that you that you draw the comparison to movies because if you were going to do that, Danzig would be like the psychological thriller, and White Zombie would be the slasher flick. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but yeah, nineteen ninety two, White Zombie. They were hungry and they put on a show like nothing I'd seen at that point, and they gave Danzig a run for their money. I saw a White Zombie headline the uh, venue I've been speaking about, the Austin City Coliseum, no longer there, with uh, The Obsessed. Oh, that's Wino's band. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I want to say Prong was on the bill as well. That sounds right, yeah. And um, obviously the 90s. Yeah. Prong was... Um, Supporting that big record, I uh, can't recall the name right now. Beg to differ or cleansing? Cleansing. Cleansing. Okay. The cleansing. Snap the your cleansing. finger. Snap your neck. Yeah. Snap your finger. Snap your neck. Yeah. Um, totally loved that record. Was blown away by Prong and was very happy to see uh, the obsessed because they're kind of this underground legendary, sort of like a Sabbath disciple. Uh, influenced a lot of the stoner rock yeah. uh, culture. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, Wino's work with St. Vitus and things like that should be mentioned. Yep. So, yeah, so yeah. it's kind of like, a, you know, Rob Zombie's cool. He's he's well-versed, and he, he knew what he was doing the whole time. That's why he's basically a producer, period. You know, he's he, he puts things together, and they work because they, they're well thought out, and he knows yeah. how to. He he hits execute. He knows how to hit the red button and make yeah. it. So he's what you call a visionary, I guess. Yeah, I love it. I love yeah. it. He's yeah. A cool cat. Now I think that when he's not singing through effects, you know, um he's not, he's not I've never heard him not sing through effects. Well, you know, he made a couple of records as Rob Zombie where he's where he streamed down and he took a took a lot of the, you know, underwater digital effects off of his microphone and you can you can tell that yeah you need to put that back on there bro yeah you, know, well, you don't sound so much like a monster anymore you need to keep the monster <laughs> thing going on you know yeah well uh, they left an impression on me for sure when I saw oh, them yeah. open for Danzig that was a great double bill no, awesome. no disrespect to Danzig because they came out and did a great job too but White Zombie was just like whoa yeah. Uh, here's another one. Uh, th this one's going to be a little bit obvious because uh, everybody that was there would say the same thing. But I saw, and you might have been there, I saw Metallica 
played the Texas Jam, and they were about third build. Uh, mm. Jason Newstead was new to the band, uh, and Justice for All was not quite in the record stores yet. Wow. They played they played Harvester of Sorrow uh, for the audience before the album was out, and nothing else mattered to quote to paraphrase uh, Metallica after they were done. And I'm talking about a bill that still had Scorpions and Van Halen on top. But uh, the guys I felt the most sorry for was Dokken because Metallica came out in the middle of the afternoon and just there's 85,000 people at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, and they just destroyed that place. And then uh, poor Dokken had to come on with their melodic hard rock, you know, and I mean, they just didn't stand a chance after Metallica. And then, you know, uh, Scorpions and Van Halen came on. Scorpions, we've talked about them on previous episodes. They've always been really reliable. They always put on a great show. They're always great performers. They're always at the top of their game. And so they came out and did a great show. Um, But where do you go after Metallica, especially in 1988, you know? It's a different kind of a fan, I want to say. I might get shot at for saying that, but I think that... You know, I I used to say this joke uh, when I do my Metallica tribute band. I I I usually use Dokken as a punching bag, and I'm sorry if you're a Dokken fan, but it, it's you'll understand the joke when I tell the joke. It's like, you know, in 1983, when Kill 'Em All came out, and you heard it, and we heard it, and they heard it, and the guy sit the guy and girl sitting next to the guy and girl sitting next to the guy and girl when they all heard it. It made you want to throw away your docking record. I, I've you, heard you it, say that. <laughs> it made you think like that. Yeah. You know? And I think that there's a, it's of importance to, and I don't mean, I don't even mean disrespect to docking when I say that. I'm just saying you don't have a chance after Metallica. Here, here's, a, the, I feel like there's not a contest going on in this show, by the way, but let's go to, Hate Breed opening for Slayer. This would have been early 2000s. I saw it at La Zona Rosa, which mm-hmm. is a fairly small venue. Yeah. And I, I think, think they, I was... they may have done two nights. Yeah, I think they did two or three nights and they were all sold out. And Hate Breed was opening. Now, who opens for Slayer? <laughs> you know what I mean? Talk about not ha- not having a chance in hell. That's very fitting, right? And I think it's hate breed opens for Slayer. Yeah, the brutality yeah. is there. It's you know if you want to get hit in the face repeatedly with nunchucks by the opening band before you go and get hit in the face <laughs> repeatedly again by Slayer, it's going to be hate breed. And I think that there's something to that. And it was just uh, it was it was mania. Yeah. Well, you know, that that's what I'm saying about the Texas Jam. Now, you know, to be fair, that that bill was booked, you know, as all bills are based on stature. Right. So um, at that time, Dokken had sold more records. They were a bigger mainstream attraction than Metallica. Metallica is just, you know, they're off they're They're coming off of uh, Master of Puppets, which is starting to kick down the door. But they're still compared to a Scorpions or compared to a Van Halen. They're not quite there yet, you know. And uh, 
and and can they I ask, can I ask who went on before Metallica? Yeah, before Metallica was um, Kingdom Come. Okay. Yeah. And then anybody yeah. else? Um, I think there was a. I might be getting my Texas jams mixed up, but I want to say there was a local-ish band called Fahrenheit 451 mm -hmm. that was either on that bill or the year before. Uh, so Metallica was like about third on the bill that day. You know who I, I'm gonna go, this is probably not true, but I don't know why I want to say this, that like Bob Rock was in Fahrenheit 451. Uh, it's a terrible band name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> somebody, somebody famous was in that Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah, I know Bob Rock was in a band because Metallica makes fun of him in one of those documentaries because he kind of had the girly hair and whatnot. Somebody was somebody with somebody that will that's not maybe not a household name, but someone we know that's, you know, in the industry, I think was in that band. I don't know them to be a local band. I think that they were they probably paid to play, but they right, were, right. Up-and-comers okay. kind of thing. Well, you know, the, the point being that Metallica was third on the bill on that day, and they came out in the blazing hot sun, and it was just hotter than Hades, and and they were just hungry, and they had Newstead was uh, relatively new to the band, so he's trying to prove himself. The band is trying to prove that they can get up in front of a Scorpions or a Metallica and command an arena of 80,000 people and they just wiped the floor with that place. I mean, they just, Oh yeah. It. They never went on in the, they never went on that time of day ever, again. ever again. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, Van Halen was headlining that bill and, uh, and Hagar and, with Hagar. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just to be clear uh, for David Lee Roth. Fans right. Right. I want to make and sure I that think Hagar's, I think that's the, Van, I think that's the, uh, I think that's the gig where Hagar's voice crapped out on him and they had to they had to pull off the they pulled out early and said we'll be back and we'll play a free gig and they did years later they made good on that. But anyway, um Metallica in front of uh Scorpions, Van Halen and Dokken and I don't think anybody went home talking about anybody other than Metallica. So yeah. Yeah, yeah that's kind of that's that's another one of those things. <clears throat> that's yeah. kind of the reason we're doing this show right now. It's like uh, bands you see opening for someone else, you'll never see them open for anyone else ever again, probably. And Metallica is one of those bands. Right, right. Um, I have one more. Um, yeah. And we we touched on this briefly in a previous episode. Um, uh, you mentioned Quiet Riot earlier in this episode. And I saw... Um, Quiet Riot. The bill was Helix, White Snake, and Quiet Riot. And yeah, White Snake was supporting the Slide It In record. Yes. And Quiet Riot was supporting the Condition Critical record. And I saw the show in San Antonio, and I liked Quiet Riot on the Metal Health record, but by Condition Critical, they were already starting to lose me. Um, I can say the same th exactly. Yeah, they, they I I don't know what. It's like they made their mark and I'm I'm glad they did and that that Metal Health record was a pretty solid record. I like what it did as far as putting heavy metal into the mainstream and all that good stuff, but 
man, they it seems like they just, I don't know, the second record didn't live up to it at all. And meanwhile, here comes Whitesnake. So it's the Slide It In tour. Uh, they got John Sykes on guitar. They're not yet this pretty boy hair band that they would become a couple years later. So there's still kind of that uh, bluesy British hard rock band that's more about bell bottoms and leather jackets instead of the spoofy, the poofy hair and the spandex and all that stuff. And uh, I, I think that was the first time I ever saw Whitesnake and they stole the show. Yeah, I they agree. Great. 100%. I saw that. Where? What venue? I saw it in the arena in San Antonio. So it was the Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio. Yeah, I saw it at uh, Palmer Auditorium down on Auditorium Shores. I saw that uh, exactly. Awesome. Both Helix, uh, White Snake, and Quiet Riot. Now, I must say that Helix was very fun, and that was my first time to see them. I think I had seen them. Um, maybe that uh, Give Me an R. Oh. Yeah rock you what you yeah. gonna do that thing yeah and they were fun yeah but that's all i could remember by them and it's really all i can still remember by them is that catchy give me an r right and um canadian rock bands i i'm a sucker for canadian rock bands um there's a ton of canadian rock and metal that i really like but that's one that didn't really i don't think i've ever owned a helix record yeah. Um, uh, no disrespect to them, right, at all. Uh, but they were, I remember they were fun. I got there early and I saw the whole show. But um, for the most part, I was there to see Whitesnake. Yeah. Because exactly what you said, I don't want to repeat everything. They had John Sykes. Yeah. They had Cozy Powell. Yeah, that's and right. I, and they had, uh, I want to say, the bass player they had... I wish I could remember his name right now. I'm going to say Neil Murray. Yes, you're exactly right. Now, what's his background again? Oh, geez. Didn't he play? He's he's He played with someone else. He's one of those guys that probably drifted in and out of Deep Purple and Rainbow and just okay. like everybody else. That's a show we haven't done yet. Is yeah, the don't hold me to it. But, yes, right. he, he does have a background. And that's in, a, we're going to hear that name again. Yeah. And, they may have had a keyboard player that night. They may have not. They probably did because a lot of those songs have uh, have like organ and stuff on them. But anyway, that slided in record was huge. I love the um, slow and easy was on the radio. Mm -hmm. Video for slided in, I think, was all over MTV. This would have been about 83 or 84. It was 85 when the tour. 85. Okay. Yeah. 85. Okay. And I was blown away by Whitesnake especially John Sykes and his guitar playing. Now, I wanted to see John Sykes because I'm a big Tigers of Pantang fan, and he was just out of Thin Lizzy. Right. And yeah. uh, like a year and a half out of Thin Lizzy, right? So yeah. that was still, he was still, he was still a member of uh, legend, legendary bands, and here he is with Whitesnake. Yeah. And we've talked about John Sykes before on Talk Louder about when Coverdale the labels like you know you you need prettier you need people who are willing to wear pink and green on stage with sparklies all over but if you think about john sykes he never really did that he was more a simpleton sort of british guitar player 
that wanted to wear leather pants and maybe a pirate shirt. Yeah. And that's, that's as glam as he's going to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, that was a great show. I stayed for Quiet Riot, but Whitesnake stole the show. And, yeah. Uh, and I even want to say that just, just hearing that one hit song by Helix, um, I remember that more than I remember Quiet Riot. Well, Helix, uh, you'll remember, uh, there was another, they had uh, that song, Heavy Metal Love. I know you know that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. I, I do like that song. I just yeah. about it. And they had an early track that Joe Anthony used to play on the radio in San Antonio. It was a ballad, and it's something like, uh, well, there was another one called Deep Cuts the Knife. That was a, a Helix tune that was on the radio. Oh. Mm-hmm. And there was one that went back even earlier that's, uh, uh, I'm gonna mess up the title, but it's something like, "Jeez, uh, uh, it, it reminds me of that title, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon." But that's uh, that's that, that's not it. But it's the sentiment is no, similar that's, to that. That's uh, that's Urge Overkill doing a cover of that. Yeah, song. yeah, yeah. Okay, I so when I think of that, I think of Urge Overkill. But anyway, but anyway, but anyway it, it also it also cements the that the uh, the demand in my brain that we must do a talk louder. Uh, episode on Canadian rock. Yes. So we, we still have to do that. Yeah. A lot of Canadian rock. And we will talk about Helix again. Yeah. So, so what's an, do you have another one? Well, I was going to add one more footnote to that White Snake show. So um, I was, uh, I decided to go to that gig at the last minute. So I tagged along with some friends who already had their tickets. And we get to the venue. And of course, I don't have a ticket yet. So they were nice enough to stand in line with me at the box office so I could purchase a ticket at the venue. And as we're standing in this line, a taxi cab pulls up behind us and Coverdale and Sykes jump out of the cab. They walk around to the back. The cab driver is with them. He pops the trunk. Sykes reaches into the trunk, pulls out his guitar case and Sykes and Coverdale walk past the crowd into the arena, onto the concourse and disappear. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, oh, my God, that's the guys from Whitesnake. You know, I'm a kid. Right. And I'm just I'm just in awe that those guys got out of a taxi cab right in front of me and then just walked right through the crowd (laughs) Rock stars are people too, Dave. I know, right? Well, you know, when I'm 18 or 19 years old or whatever, the last thing I'm expecting is these guys that I'm about to see on stage jump out of a taxi cab and walk through the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll I'll never forget that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. You got any others that come to mind? I saw uh, Riot open for Saxon. Ah, and that is a man. huge that is a huge deal. And ah, that's again, this is this is like chalking it up next to sort of you know why and what and what I'm gonna take home and from from this experience kind of a thing because you know and it was Rep Forester, it was Restless Breed, I believe. And um I can't remember the Saxon the record Saxon was touring. I think I'd already seen him on that that year um it was just another leg or something yeah. uh, but my mind was blown i was seeing legendary bands and i i have to say i enjoyed both probably well maybe maybe saxon maybe i'll favor saxon but i'm telling you 
Riot made an impression. Riot. I mean, I had already seen Riot. I, I saw Riot, uh, uh, totally kill it opening for someone who I can't even remember on uh, Fire Down Under now. Being all I remember is Riot. Wow. All I remember is the Fire Down Under tour. And, uh, I want to say at uh, Palm Auditorium at the same, same venue that I saw White Snake at, and uh, you know, Riot. You know, Riot's one of those bands that I I was never going to see headline, just like Cheap Trick. It's I would I would never see them headline. Um, I would always see them in an arena, uh, you know, in the middle somewhere. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't know. It's not it, this this show is not about underdogs, but it kind of is because we're sitting here talking about bands that. You know, obviously, I mean, when you mention Metallica, you're not really talking about an underdog really at all until you are, until yeah. you are talking about, um, I'll, th I'll throw one in here and this is, this has been mentioned before. I, I mean, I have, uh, trophies hanging on the wall over there from this, this show and, um, it was Wednesday, August 24th, 1983. And that is Metallica opening for Raven. Oh, wow. Can't see what I'm saying. So, you know, here's, yeah. these, here's these kids on their first tour. They're on tour opening for some of their idols. Right, right. So, you know, uh, it, it's like the, the, the band that's influenced by nothing but New Wave of British Heavy Metal bands opening for a New Wave of British Heavy Metal band that they're influenced by. So yeah. <laughs> it was not, uh, it was not a, a um, a disgruntled fan, uh, no refunds were given, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, people might've gotten hurt from the excitability and just the fire in the room, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that did actually happen. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I talked about this where there was a pit, I was in said pit, I got an elbow to the face and John Gallagher from Raven came out and find me right. this whole thing. And, and I could barely understand his accent, but uh, he came to check on me. I thought that was really cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just no way around it. I saw that, that show two or three times on that tour with Raven. And it was, it was mind blowing to just see where the opening band, you could walk away and go, you know, man, I'm seeing something special. Yeah. And I knew I was seeing something special. Yeah. Uh, but there was, it, it was definitely, I was, it was like the riot and the sack riot opening for Saxon. It's like, what, you know, um, I saw loudness open for keel, I think. And, yeah. uh, or maybe it could have been keel open for loudness and it was pretty much, pretty unbelievable, uh, as well. Um, but uh, since I don't recall who was opening it, I guess it doesn't really fit. I'm just sort of, I'm just bragging now. You right. Know? <laughs> well, I think we, uh, we, we, we mentioned some good ones today. Um, and I'm sure if we put our brains together, we'd come up with three more shows on this very topic because we've seen plenty of concerts and I know you and I have been uh, – impressed at the very least and blown away on many occasions by yeah i, by I was thinking I, yeah of course i was thinking earlier about your experience uh with the plasmatics yeah opening for kiss and how you you were there to see the almighty and then you were like what yeah you were yeah. bumped at riot 
the the kings of uh, support act, the king of support uh, bands, uh, had to cancel for whatever reason, and and uh, and then you're like, oh man, and yeah. then pleasant surprise, boom, yeah, violent surprise. But yeah, I was disappointed that I was gonna have to sit through the plasmatics to see my heroes kiss, and and you're right, the plasmatics just. I, I just, I, I was damaged after that, you know, and that was my very first concert. So yeah, that's another case. That's another, uh, that's another concert that fits the topic of the show. I talked about it on uh, past episodes, so I was going to try and cover some different ground today, but yeah, certainly, uh, the plasmatics opening for kiss blew my mind for sure. Yeah. Most definitely. So, so it, it, I think that um, we we should mention that this idea for talking about the support bands and the opening bands, um, and and making it a show topic uh, has been brought to you again by Bob Sutcliffe. Bob Sutcliffe. Yeah. And We're gonna have to uh, give him some credit. He's an honorary yeah. member of the staff here at Talk Louder. <laughs> this one's right. for you, Bob. Exactly. Um, but, but you know, I. It, it, in kind of hindsight now you can you can go the other way where i've seen i've gone to see i'm probably going to get uh, get shots for this too but dude i saw soundgarden open for guns and roses and i was ready to be all blown away by soundgarden and they they i felt like they fell short um not because uh you know Guns N' Roses is the better band or anything like that. I just feel I just feel like they had an off night. I don't know what it was about Soundgarden. It didn't translate to me. So yeah. we could do a show about how you're you're gonna go see this incredible bill, and then you realize, oh well, there's a reason Guns N' Roses is blowing up right now. Yeah, you know? and there's a reason why maybe uh, I I love Soundgarden and I'm going to see them, and then I'm like. I wonder how come it's like kind of sounds kind of half ass. That sounds so, like an odd mix to me. Uh, uh, well, I was saying the performance of Soundgarden. Right, right. Didn't there was no train? I you know in a club, I maybe standing three feet away from the band in a club, you know, seeing Soundgarden. That would be something that there was no way I would have been able to not get the yeah. vibes they were throwing down but in an arena setting it didn't it didn't uh, work the same way yeah it's not, you know some bands are capable of commanding an arena and some bands were just built for clubs and that's not a knock on those bands that are built for clubs cuz i some of the best shows i've ever seen are clubs because it's all about that intimacy and the sweat and the volume and the stink and the the energy you're you're talking about a whole new episode of yeah, talking about clubs I know. And arenas, so. we should wrap this one up before we turn that's, it into another right. one <laughs> right. yeah, it was it was a great show enjoy yeah this yeah good topic opening bands that impressed us or stole the show let's move on to shot of rock <laughs> I'm going to be totally random today. And, and you know, that's kind of what Shot of Rock is all about, or can be anyway. But uh, I was listening to the radio the other day, which I rarely do, in Shame my car. Yeah. What? Shame on you. Yeah, I know. I know. Shame on me. I guess I didn't have a CD within reach or something like that. But anyway, uh, Bad Company came on. Uh, mm -hmm. Band with a lot of great songs. And I thought, here's You are forgiven. One. 
I am going to ask Jason to name his favorite Bad Company song. Song is would be really, really hard. Uh, narrow maybe, it down. Narrow it down. Uh, I, I, it, maybe something from um, the first album. Maybe something from Run With The Pack. Maybe something from Straight Shooter. Because those three records are like, uh, they're biblical to me. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge Paul Rogers fan. I don't know if, if you knew that. I don't know if, if anyone knew that about me, but, uh, wow. If I have to pick one song, uh, you know, I don't think people are going to expect this, but today the only song I can think of, and I love them. I, there's a lot I love about Bad sure. Company, Silver, Blue and Gold. Ooh. Was not expecting that. That's a good one. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's a, a really soulful tune. Very, very well uh, written song. And I, I like I like the production back then. Uh, you know that it's probably live. They probably recorded the instrumentation live and uh, probably overdubbed the vocals. It just has this uh, this energy. And uh, it is soulful. It's almost a gospel song, you know, and yeah. it breaks down in all of the verses. You know, it's really pretty in the verses. And then they when they kick into the verse, it's it's almost like a Motown vibe in the yeah. choruses. Um, and there's something to say about Bad Company. You know, it, I I maybe some might argue with the fact that I'm going to call myself a songwriter, but I write songs. Sure. Uh, it's hard to write a song that doesn't need harmony vocals to, to make the song have a hook, you know, to, to feel like the song is going to translate. It's really easy to just stack a bunch of harmonies and throw in some gang vocals to give the song more depth and more attention. Yeah. Company is one of those bands, much like Soundgarden. Chris Cornell can write a great song that doesn't really need a whole lot of harmonies or backups or anything. Yeah. Paul Rogers is one of those guys that can write a melody and write a song that has a lift. And that's all you need is that one melody. Doesn't need a bunch of harmony vocals that bring it out. Like I love Journey, but Journey has a shit ton of harmony vocals on all of their tunes. Yeah. So yeah. that's, it's an interesting sort of like side note to that. But uh, yeah, I'm going with Silver, Blue, and Gold. That's Bad a great that's one. Good shot of rock and roll. Oh, great answer. Bad I was not expecting Bad Company, that. Bad Company is kind of a left field right now. I didn't expect you to bring that up. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a what, what might seem fairly random um, is, have you ever met Kiss? And you could, I know you've interviewed Gene and that counts, but have you ever like met him like in person? I've met Any Ace Fraley. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Uh, I've interviewed Gene twice, Paul once, Peter once. Uh, and oddly enough, I've met Ace, but never interviewed him. So right. um, the thing with Ace was, he was playing here in Austin as part of that Batfest celebration, yeah. like a street festival for those that aren't familiar. And uh, he was in town playing that. And 
my friend Mario Escovedo, who uh, fronts a band that's now defunct, a band called The Dragons out of San Diego, great rock and roll band. Um, they put out a few records and then disbanded. But uh, I met them. We became friends. They were here every South by Southwest for like 13 years running. They had this incredible streak of South by Southwest. So we were friends. Well, um, their bass player, Steve Rodriguez, bless his soul, uh, passed away a few years ago. And the Dragons were doing a memorial show to raise funds for Steve's family. And uh, lo and behold, Ace Fraley shows up and does a few songs with the Dragons in Steve's memory. So... I see there's YouTube video of it. Um, and so I was talking to Mario and made some joke about the fact that um, Ace Fraley's coming to town. This is a couple years later. I said, Ace is coming to town. I'm going to the show. I'm going to wear my dragon shirt just to, you know, in honor of you and the boys, you know. And he says, you should get in touch with this guy named Tom. He's road managing Ace and he'll hook you up. And I was like, really? <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, just uh, try and reach out to him. So he gave me his name and I found him on Facebook and I, and I messaged the guy and I said, hey, we have a mutual friend, Mario Escovedo, and uh, I know you're traveling with Ace and you're on your way to Austin where I live. I'm going to be at the show. And if it's possible to say hello to just you, not even Ace, just I want to say hi to you because you're buddies with my buddy, you know. And I said, I'll be easy to spot. I'll be down front wearing a dragon shirt. And he says, great, I'll look for you. So we go to the gig. And sure enough, Ace is staying in this hotel that's right next to the stage in downtown Austin. It's literally walking distance to the stage. So I get down there and I and sort of strategically placing myself like at the foot of the stage off to the side where I can kind of see the action going on behind the stage. And here they come walking from the hotel to the stage. And this guy who I've never met before sees me standing there in my dragons t-shirt and he points at me and kind of winks. And he's like, you're the guy. And I was like, you must be Tom. And he comes over to me and he says, let me get him on stage and I'll come talk to you for a minute and we'll, we'll hang out a bit. And I said, do what you got to do. So he gets Ace on stage, comes over, we talk. And then at the end of the night, he takes me up to Ace's hotel room and we got to spend about 10 minutes with Ace Fraley, uh, just taking photos and, and hanging out and, you know, shooting the bull. And that's the only time I've met a, a member of KISS, but it was super cool because I didn't pay for it. It was totally based on friendship, a friend of a friend and connections and Ace was super cool. And Tom, uh, I got to give a shout to Tom Rulon. He, he made it happen and a shout to Mario Escovedo cause he, you know, connected me to Tom. So yeah, Ace is the only one I've ever met, but it was an honor as you can imagine. That's, that's pretty legit. It blows away my meetings of anyone in kiss. I met Gene and Paul at a, at a, um, it was a benefit. It was in Los Angeles. I don't remember. It was like a sports complex. Uh, Mark Gary from Dangerous Toys was 
playing softball on a team with like Janie Lane. I think it was called JT Martell Foundation. Yeah. It's like making money for kids and stuff. And yeah. and uh, we were all there uh, in support. And it was, you know, it was in Los Angeles, rock stars everywhere. And our publicist uh, took us to meet Gene and Paul. There was a bowling alley on site and we, we get in this bowling alley and there's no one around. There was no handlers. There was no ma- security or management or anything. And Gene and Paul are just over here hanging out by these bowling lanes and no one's bowling. So, you know, where you go to like release the ball, they're just standing on the, on the bowling, on the lane. And, <laughs> and, um, and we, so we all walk over and it was like shaking hands with a tree. You know, they were just looking over my head. They weren't looking me in the eye and I just shook their hand. They were just holding their hands out all limp like they were royalty or something. It was, I don't, they looked out of place. Yeah. <laughs> totally out of place. So I almost can't, I need to just kind of give it, give that one to them just to be fair. Cause they just looked out of place Yeah, and it was very anticlimactic. There was nothing. I walked away going, okay, that was pretty weird. Where's the cameras? Cause this is pretty weird. It's like David Lynch film or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm, they were kissing. I was the phantom. It's like I wasn't even there, right? <laughs> uh, and, the, and then, and then I, uh, La Semana, uh, years later, a handful of years later, La Semana, ooh, man, probably 90s, some, you know, uh, mid-90s, um, maybe, you know, 93, 94, um, Kiss played. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was like early early 90s because i think i was living in galveston at the time and couldn't go to the show and i was bummed out okay well i had uh you know i had i had the cool guy passes and all that and and you know it's a it's a free-for-all back there because it's in a giant parking lot as you know this festival right tons of bands play but in the backstage area i mean it's so they because there's like golf carts racing everywhere and runners and all the buses are back there and they can't really afford I'm not going to say a Ford, but they, they, nothing's really roped off other than the fence that goes around, uh, that basically is roping off, uh, if you will, uh, corralling general admission. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul's back there and there's a line of like, I don't know, seven or eight people and they've got stuff for him to sign. And I'm back there with nothing except my stick on pass. It's not a laminate. It's not that cool. But I so I I I I peel this stick on pass this after show kind of thing and I stick it on my hand to hold out my hand so he can sign it and I'm in the line I'm not cutting I'm not I'm not telling him who I am I'm not right I'm not playing trying to you know say hey I'm somebody let's hang out you know it was nothing like that I got in line other people had koozies and maybe they had a, a poster or maybe an album cover or something like that. I didn't have anything. Yeah. And I'm like, holy crap, that's Paul Stanley. You know, I'm freaking out. I'm a fan. So I get up there and I, I hold out my hand with this lame ass stick on backstage pass <laughs> stuck to my hand. I'm holding it out for him to sign. Cause there's, you know, we're not at a table, right? Right. There's nothing. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to put it on my breast and have him sign that, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah, maybe I should have at this point. Here's, here's where I'm getting is, uh, he sees the pass. He looks up at me 
and he goes like this. He puts the cap on the Sharpie in my face, turns around and walks away. <laughs> this is Paul? I got dissed by Paul Stanley. Oh. That's Does he know story. how much money you've spent on him in, in all your lifetime? <laughs> Obviously, it didn't matter to him. <laughs> well, that's a great story for all the wrong reasons, man. <laughs> yeah, I, had to, I had to get over that one. You know, yeah. it makes me really wonder what I might have done to upset him. Oh, but it man. makes it makes me sort of fantasize that, like, maybe he knows who I am, and maybe I know someone that he knows, and maybe I was mean to them, or maybe he's. <laughs> Surely Paul Stanley's not jealous of me for some reason, you know. Right, right. So it was I don't know. It's one of those <laughs> freak out like stranger than fiction type of wow. stories. Wow, two opposite experiences. You, yeah, you, and I can't make this. I can't had, make that up. Yeah. I can't make that story up. Yeah. That's a true story. <laughs> wow. Just by Paul Stanley. Yeah. Well, there you go. Man, all right. Well, let's uh, save some for another episode. This has been fun. I enjoyed talking about opening bands, and uh, I loved your Kiss story, and I loved your uh, selection of Bad Company tune. That was a good one. Was not expecting that. So, um, uh, thank you everybody for tuning in. Remind you when you uh, go to our YouTube channel and you watch the videos of the show, please uh, hit the subscribe button. Leave your comments on our message boards. Leave your comments on our Facebook page. Uh, we saw a lot of good feedback this week. You guys chiming in on some of the topics, and I love that. Uh, I love hearing what bands you've seen and what stories you have and, uh, you know, the, the adventures that you've had in rock and roll. It's not just about me and Jason. It's about you as well, so feel free to share, and uh, we'll get back to you. We'll answer, and we'll continue the conversation on our various platforms. But until next time, on behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast.